listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Stigma is a persistent barrier to care and adversely affects people across a wide spectrum of health conditions in the United States. Health-related stigma emanates from a long history of exploitation, discrimination, and negligence from the American healthcare system. Experimentations on marginalized populations, the blatantly irresponsible approach to the emergence of AIDS during the Reagan administration, and more recently, attempts to outright ban gender-affirming therapy in various states. It's clear to see where stigma comes from and trace the lines back through America's disreputable past. But how do we move forward and bridge the gap? How do we improve equity in a deeply flawed healthcare system? Hi, my name is Courtney Wu. I'm a final year pharmacy student and I'm the chair of Practice with Pride, a national committee of pharmacy students advancing the care for members of the LGBTQ community. My pronouns are she and hers. I have a passion for advocating for this community because my first friend that I identified with in the community was when I was in just third grade. Pharmacists and pharmacy students are committed to the advancement of care and improvement of equity. Pharmacists remain the most accessible healthcare providers in the country and are involved in virtually every field of medicine from emergency medicine to primary care and specializations like nephrology, dermatology, or oncology. Pharmacists are expanding their scope of practice and in many states can provide birth control, HIV prophylaxis therapy, and even oversee gender-affirming care, which was discussed in our last episode. All of these different areas where pharmacists practice present opportunities to address stigma and provide healthcare to those that need it. We recently got to speak to folks with the Triad Health Project, an organization based in High Point and Greensboro, North Carolina. We spoke with Adriana Adams, pronouns she, her, and Corey Higgins, pronouns he, him. You'll hear from us again too, students at High Point University. My name is Shane Gerritsen, my pronouns are he, him. My name is Adi Gante, my pronouns are he, him. Tell me about the Triad Health Project. So in general, Triad Health Project is a sexual health and justice organization. This is Adriana. She's the executive director of Triad Health Project. We primarily service folks who are living with HIV um, and try to provide care uh, with a focus on obtaining a future free from HIV. And we uh, want to focus on doing that, but obtaining a future free from HIV by focusing on the stigma and root causes of HIV. So really, um, we want to provide both care for folks who are living with HIV, um, meeting with them uh, wherever they are on their journey, whether they have been just newly diagnosed or they're someone who's been living with HIV for quite some time and are experiencing experiencing either barriers to care um, or maybe they want to just connect with other people who are living with HIV and find um, a safe space. Um, So that's one aspect of our work. And then the other aspect of our work is prevention. So providing testing um, here at our location for HIV and other STIs as well as pregnancy um, and education and uh, safer sex um, tools. Uh, So we do that in our office locations as well, both in Greensboro 
Brian and High Point. Um, we also have a facility called Higher Ground, which is a day center that is really focused on that stigma aspect of HIV. Um, it's a place where folks who are living with HIV can come and really find a safe space, or that's the goal, um, to be with other folks who are living with HIV. Um, we serve a meal there daily, uh, three to four days a week. And also there's support groups. Um, there may be someone who's doing an art therapy group. There may be someone who's doing yoga. There may be someone who is leading a discussion group on what is um, happening in their lives. Uh, so that's a little piece, um, kind of an overview of who Triad Health Project is. So you mentioned is stopping the stigma of HIV, and that's something that's been perpetuated for the past 40 years. What are some of the initiatives that you all have taken to help fix that stigma problem that we have? Well, I know for me in prevention, um, firstly, just talking about HIV as if it's just a, a, a regular thing. That's Corey Higgins, the Director of Prevention and Wellness Services. I think a lot of people that come in for testing and screening um, are afraid to mention HIV and that they're afraid of it. So just talking to them like we're talking right now, like is this a normal, is something to look out for, something to watch out for, and not making it this big bad secret and demystifying it, breaking it down, talking about what it does, what it is. Um, the difference between HIV and AIDS is important as well. People get fearful of that. Um, also with the safer sex supplies, um, Condoms is the safest way to prevent yourself from, from getting HIV and being stigmatized by it. So we prepared some safe sex kits, we call them PPE kits, and they have come with a face mask, hand sanitizer, condoms, and we just, it's like a, it's just a bag you pick up and it's labeled, it's got a logo on it, and you can just pick it up and take it out in the street. It's not a brown paper bag, it's nothing to be ashamed of. And for me, I think the best way to stop the stigma is just to, uh, be direct and honest about it. That's what we do here at THP or HIV. It's not this big bad. It's just a common everyday thing that you have to look out for. It's not anything scary. Yeah. I think Corey's really great there. He's hit the nail on the head. We're normalizing this conversation, um, both around HIV in general, STIs, testing, um, you know, how regularly once you get tested that it's really just a part of your health. Yes. That sexual health is part of your health. Um, having conversations about our bodies, yes. about how we keep them healthy, about sex in general, um, about gender, about identity, about how all these things go together, and about how keeping the stigma going is perpetuating this health risk. Right, right. It can be a, a, a tough balance because, you know, as you talk about risk, you can perpetuate the stigma, right? And so we want to be really careful about that line. We want to make sure that people are understanding that, you know, it's not that we want to destigmatize so much that we say, hey, HIV is great. We want, you know, we're not, we're not doing that. But we do want folks to know that if you do have HIV and you want to share or you want to, um, it's not a death sentence right. as it was at one point. You know, right. there are great medications out there. 
Um, if you've ever heard of U equals a U, um, that undetectable is untransmittable. And so um, that's a campaign that we try to promote. Mm -hmm. um, it's been promoted by the CDC. Mm -hmm. um, and so we try to promote that in the community too, so that people know that if someone does not have barriers to healthcare, if they can access their medications, access their, their doctor, um, keep on their medication, that they can also become untransmittable, yes. undetectable. And that means that they can also not spread HIV. Right. Um, and so that's a really important part of it. We've done a campaign called Stop the Stigma before, um, and that's been on our website, but we're actually going to be launching it again yeah. coming up here really soon in October um, so that we can give people tips on how to talk about STIs, right. how to normalize this testing, how to bring a friend, how to talk to a partner about getting tested. These are all things that are a part of the work that we do in order to normalize this conversation um, talk about getting on prep, right. talk about how do we um, talk to a partner ab about our past experiences. Um, one of the most honored I've felt in my life, but also like having the conversations with someone about, hey, how did you reveal your status to a, a potential partner? having that conversation with someone where they talked to me through how that process was for them. Mm -hmm. That's such a, a tough line to cross with somebody to navigate. Um, because I've seen how it's a, it's an important thing for someone to open up. It's such a level of transparency, um, vulnerability to really approach with someone um, and I think it's also just really important to normalize. And so I see that balance and that's what we're trying to strike here at THP. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's something I didn't learn until pharmacy school that you know, HIV is a very treatable and very livable thing. Um, I think our education system is a really bad job of keeping the old view of what HIV is for whatever reason that may be. Um, like that's the, there's, that's the gap is, is broadening that access to education to everybody. And that's what you all seem to be doing, which is really, really fantastic. And also with being present, I think we're, we've been trying to be more present in the community the past couple of years, even with COVID, as much as possible. And just being out there and just being present at events, I know, and, and the first Fridays, whenever we can be at beer, tours and things just to be present there yeah. and people will come up and ask us questions and make a couple of donations or pick up some condoms, take our cards and just being there and being able to discuss openly in public sexual health and just saying the word sex sometimes is it's like a, it's a very powerful thing yeah. out in the public and so mm -hmm. it kind of breaks the walls down and people are open to be out there being open and they're receiving the information that we're giving out. Yeah. One of the things I realized when I started working here a few years ago was that Immediately, I, I have children, um, and now they're 12, 11, and 8. Um, at that point, you know, it was a couple of years ago, and when I started talking to them about my work, um, they had no idea what HIV was. And I realized that where the stigma lied with me was that I did not know how to have that conversation yet with my children. I quickly figured out how to do that. 
um, because I think it's important to normalize and to talk about these things with my children and to make sure that they have an understanding at their age appropriate level. But it was a huge gap for me as a parent. I hadn't had this conversation yet. Um, because I think we sometimes think these things are either too scary Mm -hmm. or how do we talk about them? And then in turn, we do make them scary because that's how do we keep sort of like the whole abstinence conversation. Like don't have sex because you're going to get pregnant (laughs) immediately. (laughs) Um, and then you, you know, get older and you realize like, Oh God, the window of me getting pregnant (laughs) is like this tiny, it's this little tiny window of time. You know, there's like literally... 36 to 48 hours where I could possibly get pregnant, you know, in a month. And it's these things you learn as you go. Right. And I think that it's just important that we continually normalize a conversation. Where are the gaps in the knowledge? Mm -hmm. Who are we not talking to about this? Why? And ask ourselves, why are we not having this conversation? And that's been a goal wherever I discover where that gap in the knowledge is, um, as we talk about as a team Mm -hmm. to make sure that we go into that gap and we try to access that gap. And you mentioned, uh, about just being like present in the community. So tell me more about like your, your outreach and like other opportunities y'all have had for interacting with the community like that. Well, it it depends. Um, we've got, uh, with me doing prevention, my goal is always to test. Test, educate, test, educate. Uh, we have a great partnership with the North Carolina, the Giver County Health Department, and so they'll use us to help test. We test here in the office. We'll go out to colleges and test. And then we've got a testing at Greensboro College on the October 13th. We're going to test there. Everywhere we can go to test, I want to test and give whatever sexual education that I can. Uh, we've got other departments um, with uh the higher ground. Um, Julie sets that up and mm-hmm. uh, I know that we've got some events over at higher ground uh, for not just our clients, but also um, we have a monkey pot clinic there. We, we have mm-hmm. that space open for certain things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We just did a vaccine clinic, clinic. there. Um, I think for, so my first position here at THP was in development. And I, I think for a long time, it was mostly looking at for sort of THP's idea of where we would connect with the community, where ways, where does, where are the intersections where, where sex and sexual health were obvious. And now we're trying to make sure that we look at kind of the less obvious intersections. Um, we need to be wherever our target audiences are and our target audiences aren't always where we've saturated Mm -hmm. (laughs) the knowledge. Right. Um, honestly, a lot of people in the queer community know about us, right? Um, sure. We want to make sure that we do testing or we're out and we have a table at our local queer clubs. We want to be at drag brunches and bingos and things like that. But we also want people to understand that HIV is not necessarily a queer issue, right? That we have um, other folks in the community. This is not something just like we've been dealing with this with monkeypox, right? That this is not necessarily something that is uh, only for and in the queer community. We might have places where we need to target and make sure because you have higher rates. 
but I hope that COVID has taught us that public health is public health, right? right? And that's where we're really trying to get that message across that if one person in our community is impacted, this is something that can spread and that we, we need to make sure that everyone has the knowledge. And so where are there people who don't have the knowledge? So that's a, that's a piece um, of how we're trying to get that, that word out. So I wanna be at a Rotary Club. I wanna be you know at a library. I wanna be, um, uh, we, right now we have a couple of target audiences in our immigrant and refugee communities who don't know about necessarily our services. Um, we want to, black women are another target audience for us because the rates of HIV are growing there exponentially. And so we want to make sure that we have a reach out there. Um, we want to connect a lot with our black churches and make sure that the, uh, the word is out in those communities about HIV and sexual education, anywhere where stigma has kept this word suppressed, that's where we mm -hmm. want to be. Tell me a little bit about the um, the access to, to PrEP and your actual, like, how does that process actually work? Because it's more than just testing. Y'all actually provide PrEP, right? Yeah, we have a program that I'm very, very, very proud of. Uh, we have a partner called QCare Plus. Okay. They are Atlanta, Georgia-based um, telehealth services. Um, the, the biggest barrier that I think to PrEP, it's really, is twofold. It's the cost. And then if you live in a larger city like Greensboro, Guilford County, you can probably access that location. But if you live in, I don't know, uh, a small county in Western North Carolina, you may not find a doctor prescribe that for you. QCare keeps the cost down and connects those persons to PrEP by mailing the PrEP to them. So you would go, come into THP or go on our website. Uh, we refer you to QCare Plus. Uh, their site, qcareplus.com. You would fill in your information there. Um, they would then uh, call you up, have a telehealth appointment with you. And if you hear seven boxes, they'll then mail you the PrEP, uh, sorry, mail you a test kit. You would then send the test kit back, a blood sample, urine sample, and if you test negative, they would then mail you your PrEP to you. So there's no and no CD doctor needed. You can, it's all done in telehealth, and so we can directly connect a patient with PrEP services without a middleman of judgment and stigma and going to your country doctor who's been raising you, and now you have to tell them you're <laughs> you want to get on PrEP, and they're like, what is PrEP? So it's, it's very easy, and we, we love our partnership with QCare Plus, yeah. and it's a statewide partnership, too. So anyone from Asheville to Wilmington and in the middle can receive PrEP through QCare Plus using THP. Yeah. So we become their, basically their community-based organization partner. Um, and it's been a, a program that we've started growing over the last year and a half. Um, we, before that, were really partnering with uh, the health department. We were doing a lot of prep referrals. Um, but what we were finding is that there were still a lot of barriers yeah. to getting folks on prep. So we, we thought about a lot of different options before we went down this road. Um, as a matter of fact, we thought really long and hard. It's very strange for a nonprofit to be connected so closely to a for-profit organization. Mm -hmm. Um, and we needed to find one with the right uh, principles, one that lined up with our values. Um, what we really like about QCare Plus is that the person who is running it um, came out of a community-based organization and actually developed this um, whole model because they saw some of these gaps mm -hmm. um, and they wanted to make it easy for people to access 
PrEP from HIV organizations. And so we had this connect in this call and we were like, this is kind of too good to be true. Yeah. It's kind of weird. <laughs> it made me feel really wary. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of was like, it's too good to be true. Yeah. It is, you know, and um, we started this partnership and it's really proved to be true. Um, we've been able to connect people all over the state uh, to prep. Mm -hmm. um, with or without insurance. Some with, have insurance yes. and some do not. And they're getting their prep free for those who do not have insurance. And that's been really wonderful. Yeah. In order to facilitate more equitable care, we must first address stigma. Stigma inordinately affects marginalized patients, creating barriers to care, reluctance to seek health care, and generally poor clinical outcomes. Addressing stigma starts with the way we talk about it. As Corey mentioned earlier, normalizing things like HIV treatment, PrEP, PEP, and gender-affirming therapy is the minimum requisite for destigmatizing different spheres of healthcare. Stigma and the ramifications aren't uniform. Although there are certainly similarities in perception and barriers to care, everyone perceives, experiences, and copes with stigma differently. Tell me your thoughts on the differences between the stigma relating to HIV and the stigma relating to gender identity. Because gender identity is something that we're seeing so much. <laughs> go, go, go ahead. Wow. Um, this one is a little, hits me a little bit because I'm, I'm actually living with HIV. Um, and so, Being a black gay man living with HIV, I would like to think there was some similarity, but I don't have that experience at all. I can just go by what the people I've known has, have, have confided in me, and that is similar, but I can say I am a man. I was born with a certain part. I embraced that part that's who I am. I was up into the world as such, and I have a privilege in that. So even with my stigma, there's a, I have a, a bit of a defense. Um, I had only been told that those who do, do not, do not, things didn't line up in that way, they don't have that defense. And so I can't know it, but the stigma I would think is, is a little bit less for me, um, just by being a man and, and embracing that and having that be my gender identity. So though I can't speak to it, I, it's, you know, it's similar, but I just, I can't, I can't compare the two because I just, I, I feel that much heavier than I felt my own. Because yeah. I, I just have that, I step into the world and I don't have that fear of being rejected based on what other people see in me. Yeah, I think, I think that's a really wonderful way to put it, Corey. What I've been privy to is some conversations at Higher Ground mm -hmm. from folks, you know, we definitely have trans clients. And one of the things that they've alluded to uh, is that with their status, it's just as sometimes scary to disclose, sometimes even scarier, but there are certain things that you have to wear on the outside and certain things that you can choose to disclose. And having that choice is, you know, part of that 
part of the identity of, you know, this is a, a identity that I carry, but I can choose to who to tell it to sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes you can be outed, and that yes. is one of the parts about stigma that is yes. so scary. And sometimes, um, you know, when we talk about advocacy for laws and things like that um, around HIV, that's some of the part of where our advocacy would lie. Um, you know, some of the things people don't know about the way HIV and diagnoses go, that when you get diagnosed, that literally someone is coming to your house from the public health department. Right. <laughs> and then you have to give them a list of all your possible partners. Ooh. And then you're, they literally, by law, have to inform those people of their possible exposure. Um, so you're outed. To a degree, they don't to tell. They don't tell who, who right. referred them. But, but if I mean, you go back far, I mean, there. <laughs> so you say to a degree, but there's there's a part of that that feels very um, disempowering. Disempowering. Yeah. yeah. And I and I, I want to be careful because I don't want to step on what you have to say, and I also want to acknowledge what you shared and say thank you for that vulnerability because that is a lot and I don't want to speak for you so if I say anything that's incorrect please please correct me you know I'll let you know <laughs> <laughs> but that's been no. one piece that folks at at our day center have shared that are trans and are living with both identities mm -hmm. that it's a piece that they can choose to identify but their trans identity is something that when they try to live in their true self um, not something that they can hide mm -hmm. and that can be really um, a really hard thing yeah. certainly not as accepted I know like there's a lot of mistrust from a healthcare perspective from the trans community um, how do you guys as THPL like, set yourself apart from like, the traditional healthcare area well, firstly, as far as prevention, I try to make it as non-sterile as possible, um, but also like not too much. Like I, a lot of, I think, agencies sometimes have this thing of they don't want to be too sterile, but not like everything's cluttery. I like a nice, clean, fun, bright area. I put some posters up, have a condom tree up. I gave you or two have a condom tree. We have some signage up, you know. <laughs> we got some yeah. snacks. We have some snacks over there. We, we'll change the condom tree per season. Um, and we try to just make this a welcoming place. Like people sometimes just want to come hang out and prevention. And we'll, we'll sit there, we'll talk for 30 minutes about anything and everything. Like people just want to, they enjoy it. And so that's how I, I keep my little piece of THP happy. It's bright and it's fun and it's, I'll make you laugh. You come sit with me for 20 minutes, guaranteed. Mm -hmm. Part of my learning, I am not a member of the queer community. Um, I am certainly an ally. Um, and part of my learning has been that I think it's very similar in some ways to what I've kind of taken on in my community, in the Latina community. There are things that people have learned because of safety to communicate in ways that are not spoken. And we have to learn to speak the unspoken language. I am learning all the time about ways I just learned the other week 
from Corey about the bandanas <laughs> in the clubs, about how people were communicating to each other about whether or not they were a top or a bottom, Sexual right, in a, in a club, right? And so I'm learning things all the time. Um, and I think, again, when you link that back to safety, when you link that back to why was it not open or welcome for me to communicate this verbally? And so therefore I need to have a marker of how I fit in the world. And I want to communicate this to other people so they can pick me out on the street so we can talk to one another so we can say, oh, I see you. I know that you accept me. That's the feeling that I want people to have when they walk in this door. So, you know, to someone who comes in and is like, Oh my God, there are rainbows everywhere. Well, yeah, yeah, hell yes, there are rainbows everywhere. Um, when they see on the front door that it says all are welcome, we mean that. So that's part of what we what we're doing. For me as a leader here, as the executive director, it starts in every single interview mm. when we hire people. So if you want to be gender affirming, queer affirming, all of those things, you need to ask that question in your interview process. If that's important to you, then that has to be an overt question when you interview people. It can't just be like, can you tolerate this? We literally say at our interviews, just so you know, this is who we are. Mm -hmm. If you're not okay with that, then this is not the place for you. And that's like, it's not that that's okay to us, but this is not the place for you. <laughs> and it's time for you to self-identify and self-edit because we don't want that here and you would not be successful here. Um, and I think what that has started to do since we added that into our process is to make this a more welcoming environment. Because when someone walks in the door, volunteer down to all of our staff from who's going to be putting in the numbers all the way to who's working up front. Anyone, anyone that had to walk up front and check someone in, ask someone how they're doing, they are going to be welcomed by someone who celebrates who they are. Mm -hmm. And people know that. Um, with racism, with people, homophobia, whatever it is, you know, in your bones, when somebody does not agree with who you are at your core. Mm. And that is the piece that I think people in healthcare have to start understanding is that that's not, that's not something that can just be pushed away. That starts with your hiring. While pharmacists form an integral piece of healthcare teams, they rarely work alone. Being a pharmacist means being deeply involved in collaborative relationships and team-based decision-making with doctors, specialists, social workers, nurses, and other healthcare providers. To improve equity for our patients, we need to take the collaboration further. Joining forces with outreach organizations that focus on sexual health or harm reduction is a direct avenue for improving access to care. Forging new partnerships is key as to create a strong foundation of equitable care. Partnerships with our 
local clinics are mm-hmm. ex- extremely important. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we have a long-standing partnership with um, Cone Health and with Wake Forest or Atrium Health as well. I'm not sure exactly what they're called these days, um, <laughs> but we we continue to partner in the uh, our High Point office area um, with Atrium um, and our doctors here at the Regional Center for Infectious Disease. Um, We do a lot of partnering with them through the Cone Health Partnership. Um, That's how we make sure that the folks who are coming in who are living with HIV are able to access their care. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's a very direct partnership. A lot of our work is referral work. You know, when someone's coming in and they're needing, whether they're coming in for testing Mm -hmm. or they're coming in because there's someone who's living with HIV, they are oftentimes dealing with intersectional issues. Oh yeah. Right. So they are coming in and they may also need um, connection to food or a food bank. We have a food pantry here on site, but that might not meet their need for the whole month, right? We might be able to provide them with a certain amount of groceries for for what we can offer, but they might need other referrals. Um, housing is one of the biggest issues that we're facing right now. And so connecting with our partners, <laughs> a myriad of other CBOs, but then also with Department of Human Health mm-hmm. Services, that's going to be one of the main partnerships that we have, making sure that we can connect and get people's paperwork done. And that's what a lot of the work our case managers do here. So partnerships I believe that collaboration is how we get our work done. (laughs) Um, We cannot be everything to all people. Um, When we try, we burn out. And that happens in this field of work all the time. Um, We have to constantly bring ourselves back to that place of collaboration, um, recognizing that, first of all, we're not here to save anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, We're here to connect people, to to care, to empower people. they have everything they need in them and we're just a partner Mm -hmm. in the first place. So we're the number one partnership. (laughs) Um, And then number two, that we have partners as well that can really help us do our work. States across the country are slowly expanding pharmacists' abilities to initiate PrEP and PEP therapy. As of last year, California, Colorado, Oregon, Nevada, Washington, Maine, Virginia, and New Mexico have passed legislation and many more are in the process of introducing new laws expanding pharmacist authority. Even more states allow pharmacists to provide smoking cessation therapy, birth control, and naloxone. Many states entrust pharmacists with formularies or disease states like asthma, type 2 diabetes, or COPD for which pharmacists can manage pharmacotherapy and operate with relative autonomy. States can differ pretty widely on what's allowed. Check your state's Board of Pharmacy for guidance on specific pharmacist capabilities. As we've learned in our previous episode, pharmacists are starting to provide gender-affirming therapy in states where they have prescriptive authority, either through a clinical practitioner status or collaborative practice agreements with physicians. Despite the nexus of care in place to service our patients, barriers persist and people still fall through the cracks. In areas with limited access to clinics or other resources for medication, pharmacists can step in and bridge the gap. 
But this takes time and concerted, persistent effort from pharmacists on local and regional levels to pass legislation expanding the prescriptive authority. It seems like y'all serve sort of this, uh, this network of care for, for folks who are needing not only PrEP, but any, any kind of support. Do y'all see a lot of avenues for referrals for gender-referring therapy or kind of hormone replacement therapy? No. Okay. Um, we don't see a lot of avenues for that. As a matter of fact, I believe it was just the other week on, we used Microsoft Teams and we had a Teams message going mm-hmm. about where, where can someone receive, you know, HRT? Um, and it's not really just about that. It's about cost prohibitive, the Mm -hmm. cost prohibitive nature of it. Mm -hmm. So that's the other barrier and the intersectional barrier. So we're also looking for people who would be affirming. And also we've got folks who this is a huge barrier for them because most likely they are in a place where, you know, searching something out that's going to fit a budget of next to nothing is going to be really difficult. So, um, that is a that is definitely something we had a project that was housed with us for quite some time um it just ended mm-hmm. um actually about a month ago called the Chicas project which was through Wake Forest um uh, we had a staff member on on staff named Lucero who was a trans woman um from the Latina community who was working with actually throughout North Carolina and beyond Mm -hmm. with this project of reaching out to trans women in the Latina community who were looking for both HRT and for uh, wanting to test Mm -hmm. for HIV, prevent HIV. And it was a project that was out of Wake Forest um, to make sure that, you know, there was a study going on about how this was happening in that community. And that was something I was really proud of having in-house. Number one, as a Latina myself, I love things that are happening in the community. Um, and I think that's a really wonderful, beautiful thing that was happening, especially you talk about stigma, huge. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it, within any, and, uh, any immigrant community, anytime that you're talking about difference, (laughs) anytime that you're talking about gender identity, or you're talking about, um, you know, just the idea of being queer in general, um, that's going to be a huge barrier. And then also healthcare access, huge barrier when you're talking about undocumented folks, a lot of folks as well. So that was something that we had going on here. And that's what we saw as a barrier was access. Let's talk about, about like your perspective of, of pharmacists and how you think that pharmacists can fit into this, this sphere of healthcare because pharmacists are, are much more than just like, you know, seeing a pharmacist at CVS or Walgreens. It's, that's about half, about half of the pharmacists. And there's so many other pharmacists that are in, in hospitals. And then now where we are entering the space of gender affirming therapy, now that, that pharmacists can enter this space as, as well, how do, you, how do you envision pharmacists being a part of this in the future? I don't know why in the back of my head all the Supreme Court changes and the fact that some people are going for gender diverse persons in their legislation. I guess just standing in standing in the gap since I think there is a I'm just gonna say a certain people are trying to limit the rights of other people. 
and the medication that they can receive. Mm -hmm. And some of those people are gender diverse and some of the people are just all about women. And I just think that pharmacists are going to be, if you stand in the gap and you hold the line and you let everyone know that you will do what you can to connect these marginalized groups or these restricted groups to get the medication they need to live and survive and have autonomy over their lives, I think that's where you guys come in. I think that's what's going to be. I think letting the people know what you will, will not accept and that you will do what you can to stand with gender diverse persons and women mm-hmm. is important to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's where you guys need to come in and work on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're speaking a lot to advocacy. I think that advocacy space happens in a lot of places. You know, you just talked about multiple spaces that pharmacists are, um, you know, there's a lot of fear in all of those spaces for people who are, um, from historically marginalized communities. Um, sometimes that fear is when I go up to the cash register, is my card going to go through, (laughs) right? Like how can you advocate, Um, uh, I can think of an experience for myself, even where, uh, several years back, I didn't know how I was going to pay for certain medication and a pharmacist really helped me out in that, in that space, because they knew more about how to get my medication to me than I did. Mm -hmm. That's advocacy for folks who are in these situations, um, because there's so many intersectional barriers, right? Um, I think about how when a pharmacist is um, in a space where they're in education, like I think about how Jordan is working with students, you know, and where classrooms are so important for educating people along in that space and advocating. Also, when we've talked about hiring, I think in that place, it, it really means more about making space and education for folks who are gender, you know, non-conforming themselves, right? Having more queer representation within the pharmacy schools. Um, I don't know what the numbers look like, but I would guess it's like any other field where there's lower representation because there's higher barriers and, you know, to access. So, you know, thinking about how do we advocate along those lines and make sure that there is space at the table. Um, I'm thinking about too, like Corey mentioned with advocacy. And when we talk about stigma, to, you know, when someone is coming in to an emergency, like I know we refer people for PEP and a lot of times it's in that emergency space. Mm -hmm. And if that person is receiving that medication or has to come in and get the medication quickly, Mm -hmm. then a pharmacist is going to be really important. Partnering with CBOs. I know that one of the things that we looked at before we went with our QCare Plus model was, can we have a pharmacist who's willing to partner with us and write, you know, and a doctor and a pharmacist to partner with us and write prescriptions for these types of things? Um, How do we create that model? Because people aren't always going into hospitals. A lot of times they're coming to Mm -hmm. us first. Yes. Um, And so cutting through that red tape wherever possible, it might mean less 
money on certain ends, you know, but where, where can we make that happen? Some of our barriers that we face right now are folks who come in and, um, you know, we have, they're, they're looking for PEP and you might be able to speak to this. Oh my gosh. It's, it's been devastating. Um, I have a couple of young persons or persons come in and they need PEP and I fully, you know, we were told to send them to the ER because why not, right? They need PEP. And then they were told, no, they, I went there, the ER couldn't prescribe it. Now, we found, come to find out, Moses County at the ER, um, if they needle stick themselves, they can get PEP. But if someone's been sexually assaulted, um, they have to go find their PEP elsewhere, which is, I was like, okay, girl, I guess. Um, and so the RCID, <laughs> Regional Center for Infectious Disease, um, if we're able to reach someone there that does triage, they can get PEP, but if they're out, it's it's right. it's been a struggle. It's been a it's been a it's been it's been upsetting. Um, we've gotten most people that come in for PEP on PEP, but it's got that seventy-two hour window. Right. So let's say something happens and they can't get to us. Let's say something happened Friday night. They get to us Monday morning. They they have that couple hours to to, to get it, and it's it's been. It's been, it's been a struggle. Yeah, so I'd say that would be a really wonderful way to think about how, uh, you know, pharmacies or pharmacists could partner with, especially with CBOs for educational purposes, so to talk to them about how this would be a possibility for them. Because, um, like we, like Corey was saying, with a small window. Um, of time, it can be hard if we're trying to do that referral process. Mm -hmm. um, and so having a solid partner that we knew we could go boom right here, mm -hmm. um, availability would be fantastic or how we could make that possible for mm -hmm. ourselves. Um, we do lots of research. We figure things out. We're very scrappy, um, <laughs> but it's limited. You know, we have so much that we can handle so many things that we can do. Um, we, we take on a lot, um, and we have limited funds. So, um, we right now are pursuing to have more funding come to us from the, uh, the city council. We've applied for some ARP funding. Um, but I think that's one of the big gaps is that people, um, haven't necessarily funded prevention efforts, mm -hmm. especially in our area. Mm -hmm. And we have rising SDI rates. Oh my gosh. Um, so they're really, it's, and it's a really impacting, um, certain communities. So. So like, you talked about the rising STI rates. I was wondering like, has COVID like affected that Ooh. at all? Um, absolutely. See, the funny thing about Miss COVID is that people couldn't come in for testing, but they didn't stop having sex. And so <laughs> all those Netflix and chills and come hang out and chills had a consequence. And so it was about March. I know we reopened for testing February, January of last year. We were doing only half day testing. And when I came in, we went into like a full day. And now we have some evening testing. But I found, you know, I'm, yes, people um, didn't stop having sex. And so the STIs to spread. I mean, it's mm -hmm. like a wildfire. And I think also our public health department had to really yeah. focus on COVID and for good reason, right? They had to really focus on making sure that they had enough testing sites, yep. making sure they had enough, you know, um, vaccine sites. And that was what they were tasked with literally by the federal and state government yes. to make sure that that was their responsibility. Mm -hmm. And when they're also supposed to do that, and at the same time, 
be providing these other services. Yeah. Um, so we partner with them, you know, and so we actually were doing most of the STI testing for the county um, during COVID. And, yeah. um, you know, for no money um, and so <laughs> with two people, you know, trying to get that testing done and processed and, you know, all of that going on. Um, and so I think, you know, that's part of the issue. I think also education mm -hmm. is so limited. Oh, um, yeah. You know, we're not getting that message out. Um, and a lot of times when I talk to people about HIV um, or even other, like, said something to someone about syphilis the other day and they're like syphilis is still around yeah like it just disappeared <laughs> like, like it just went like poof. things just go away and i think here's the key to that this is where i connected in with some of what we were talking about just a little bit ago these things just like you'll see with covid any infectious disease mm -hmm. these infectious diseases don't disappear they just go settle into the margins of the margins mm -hmm. and they become uh they're not a white problem anymore Right. Or they're not a white heterosexual problem anymore. And so people are like, cool, we dealt with it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's OK. Um, the people who matter aren't dying anymore. And uh, so it's solved. And I know that that's a really harsh thing to say, but the statistics would prove it to be true. Once it's out of those communities and the fear can die down, it's yeah. part of why I think people were so willing to relegate monkeypox to, can we just say that it's an STI and it's for the gays? Right. Like, can we just please just say that? And we were really like pushing hard against this idea that, well, anybody can get monkeypox right. and we need to be really careful about how we talk about it. Um, it's not an STI. They have not given it that distinction yet. Um, and there's some kind of back and forth about that. But until we hear good science from, you know, CDC and the WHO and, you know, whatever, we're, we're not calling it an STI. And so... I think that's really where we land with with all of this is that these issues become the margins of the margins and then people can just relegate like it won't impact me and my family or my children. But guess what? It will. But it is yes. because the CDC released in February, I think in North Carolina, that heterosexual persons were receiving HIV at a higher rate than homosexual persons because us gays have PrEP and, that, and that's been mm -hmm. bringing those transmission rates down. U equals U. That also keeps the transmission rate down. But the opioid epidemic, which mm -hmm. kind of went off the charts during the pandemic, people who hadn't tested, people who hadn't had quote-unquote risky behaviors before um, are now sharing needles and using opioids. And so transmission rates are going up that way through the heterosexual population. So where it kind of has come down in a certain population is going up in another population. Period, hard stop. Yeah, again, public health is yeah. public health. And so that's the message that we want to continue to spread, um, that this is an everybody issue and we want everyone to pay attention to it. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to Adriana Adams and Corey Higgins with the Triad Health Project. Thanks also to April Nguyen, founder of Pharmacy Legislative Week and the Practice with Pride Committee. 
Music by Dave Jules.